Well, please turn with me today to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 9. Gospel of Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 27. We're going to continue this narrative from Matthew's Gospel, this last part of Matthew chapter 9. Matthew wants us to see clearly Jesus' authority to heal and to perform miracles in ways that break the laws of nature, really. And so we're going to see here this, these, this, these last two miracles in chapter 9 tie into what Jimmy covered last week, those other two miracles. And we're going to try to weave all this together and try to see at the end of Matthew chapter 9 what it is that Matthew is trying to teach us about the glory of the Lord. Amen? So if you're able to stand, please do, in reverence for the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 27. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all the district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. Verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Father God, we pause at the reading of your word and we ask that you speak to us clearly today. We see the miracles of your son Jesus and in this modern time that we live in of science and technology and answers to all of the questions that we see, we limit our ability to see the truth that is unseen. And so, God, I pray today that you would cause our modern mindsets of science and technology that kind of blur our acceptance of miracles in such a way, Lord, that you would cause us to see in your word the truth of the miraculous, but the truth that your Son, Jesus Christ, is the Lord over nature and over all things. Cause us, Father, to trust and believe in that which we do not see yet but clearly see evidence of it happening. Lord, cause this time to be for your glory. Soften our hearts. Draw us close to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Have a seat. God bless you guys. This last section of Matthew's gospel clearly focuses on miracles. Did you pick up on that? Right? Beginning in verse 18 last week when Jimmy was, showing, was talking through and, and guiding us through the two miracles of the daughter who was raised from life, or raised from the dead, and, and the woman with the issue of blood, 
the feminine issue there that she had been dealing with for 12 years, these two miracles wove together, didn't they? And Jesus shows his authority and his power as Lord over all that is created. Amen? I don't know about you, but when, when someone is dead, they're dead. It's a sad and grievous time. And we saw that in the miracle last week. The tradition of that time was to hire grievers, mourners. You hired people, they were professional mourners who would wail and, and cry for the dead. They made a spectacle of it. Yet Jesus, he shows up and he says, I've got it under control. Raises this girl from the dead. And in the process of going to this miracle, there was a woman who was so desperate, 12 years of an ailment that no one could fix. And in her desperation, she just, in her faith, if I just touch him, I'll be cured. You see how the power of Christ is expressed here in Matthew's gospel. Now we continue here in the latter part of this chapter and we see two more miracles. We see two blind men who regain their sight. By faith, they cry out for mercy and Jesus restores their sight. Then we see a demon-possessed man, someone who was unable to speak. He, he was mute because of the demon possession and Jesus was with just a word, cast out the demon, and the man was able to speak again. Two wonderful miracles. But what we see here from verses 18 all the way through here, verse 38, what we see here is miracles in Jesus' ministry. These actions of Christ seemed very unnatural in a natural world. And that's what I want us to see today in these texts is exactly what is the miracle according to Scripture? What is it that Jesus is doing when he is undertaking these miracles? And how do we, and I have to say it this way, how do we in our 21st century way of thinking and living approach and see what happened truthfully in the time of Christ and in the early church with the miraculous? There's something here that we in the 21st century world have to pause and think for a minute. What is it that God does in the supernatural as he steps into the natural? And we have, to, we have to look at this in a unique perspective because no time in human history has there been such skepticism against the supernatural and ele the elevation of the material world. And we have all the scientific answers for, to explain everything. So it's going to be difficult for us in our 21st century mindset to really grasp what it is that Christ does here. See, unnatural events are happening in Jesus' ministry. Wouldn't you agree that if a girl is raised from the dead, that seems unnatural? Wouldn't you agree that a woman who has been dealing with a 12-year feminine issue suddenly, with a snap of a finger and a word, cured? That's unnatural. Two blind men regain their sight. I don't know about you, but I've never really seen or witnessed anyone who was blind getting their sight back. Lastly, demon possession. For us, demon possession, oh, that's, that's, uh, that's fictional. That's fantastic. That's phantasmical. It's something that doesn't happen anymore. Demon possession, that's something of the old ancient world. We don't see that anymore. Yet here we have it in Scripture, a demon-possessed man who was unable to speak suddenly could speak. 
For us, these are unnatural events that occur. And, and, and when Jesus steps in here and, and he cures these problems, we see two responses. Some were amazed. Some were amazed to the point that they spread the news throughout the district telling everyone about Jesus. Others, another response, was a skeptical response, particularly from the Pharisees. And we see here in the scripture that we just read that they were accusing Jesus of doing these, I guess, magic tricks under the power of the prince of demons himself. The only way to cast out a demon is to call upon the prince of demons. So Jesus must be a follower of the prince of demons. So you've got two different responses here. Amen. So let's set the scene. Matthew in these last, the last half of chapter 9, he seems to be emphasizing the unnatural nature of Jesus' ministry. The unnatural nature of Jesus' ministry. Why unnatural? Because miracles are those events that go against the laws of nature. If you want a definition of a miracle, it is that event that goes against what is natural. So really, we look at miracles, you could rightly look at miracles as the unnatural event (laughs) because nature seems to go upside down. That's the very nature of a miracle. You can't explain it because there are the laws of nature that dictate how things occur. Laws of nature like the sun will rise every morning in the east and set in the west. That's not going to change, <laughs> right? The laws of nature that when, when a baby is born, the baby is born, lives a life, and eventually that life expels at the end of life. That's the, la- that's the laws of nature. It's going to be very difficult to go against those laws of nature. The laws of physics. We study physics in science class. Some of us did. The laws of physics are trying to understand the laws of nature. There are certain things about gravity that if you were to go against the laws of gravity, you would go, wow, that's unnatural. Amen? That's the kind of stuff we're talking about here. C.S. Lewis helps us understand this. Uh, He tells us that there are two conditions necessary for the experience of a miracle. He says that first, we must believe in a normal stability of nature, which means that we must recognize that that the senses collect experiences that recur in regular intervals, things that are consistent. Our senses will tell when the light comes. Our senses will tell us when the darkness comes. Our senses will tell us when disease is here. Our senses will tell us when death occurs. That's the first step. The second thing is, in order to understand a miracle, is in contrast to the regular natural natural patterns of life, we must believe in some reality beyond this regular pattern of life. So in other words, in order to understand a miracle, you've got to understand first the regular laws of nature, but then you also have to believe in a reality beyond our regular patterns of nature. You have to have both aspects in order to understand and grasp what a miracle is. I think C.S. Lewis is helping us see here clearly what this is. A miracle then, what we see what Jesus is doing here, when he's conducting his miracles... What he's doing then is there is this invasion or this disruption of our perception of space and time that 
our natural order, our natural world seems to be changed. The natural world seems to be disrupted by the supernatural or the external or the extranatural. In other words, there is a, a, an evidence in a, a miracle that there is more to reality than what our senses are telling us. In other words, for the Christian, are you hearing me, Christians? For the Christian, we know that there is more to reality than this. There is not only the physical reality, there is accurately and truthfully another reality that supersedes this reality. Yet in our 21st century modern world, we can be blinded and numb to the supernatural. But as Christians, we know that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, He was supernatural in every, every aspect of His being, yet at the same time, very natural in the real world too. And that's the, whole diff- that's the whole thing about miracles. A miracle, you could say, is this invasion or the disruption of the natural world by the supernatural. That's the definition of a miracle, biblically, okay? So in other words, we have to know that reality must be more than what our senses tell us is real. And this is what, see... This goes against what science tells us. Science tells us that the only thing that we know is real is what our senses show us as real. Yet if you only follow that limited perception of reality, you miss the greater truth of reality that there is something that we cannot deny that is more than and beyond what our senses tell us. Amen? Think about the conversion of a sinner to Christ. If you were to limit your understanding of that event in the physical, there is absolutely nothing in the scientific material world that can explain the conversion of someone's soul. Amen? If you try to explain the conversion of a sinful soul into the gospel message of Jesus Christ, if Jesus is transforming our soul, is there anything scientific and physical that we can measure and say the senses are telling us this is happening. Absolutely not. How many of us who have been converted into Jesus Christ or converted by Christ, knowing Jesus Christ personally as our Savior, you could sit there and scientifically measure exactly what happened in your cortex or the elevations of your, or your, your chemical imbalance of your body. Can you describe? That's, that's impossible. It's kind of ludicrous to try, isn't it? And what we see here at the end of Matthew chapter 9 is that Jesus is showing us that there is more to the reality that we live in. And through the miracles that he undertakes, it grabs the attention of all who witness it in such a way that they say there is something real here that is beyond what we know is real. Amen? Come on, Baptists. All right, thank you. All right. So miraculous signs and wonders, they were, I mean, they, they consumed Jesus' ministry. When we read the Gospels, there are miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle and signs and wonder after signs and wonder, and Jesus' ministry is full of it. They're described repeatedly in all four of the Gospels. They were acknowledged by witnesses as miraculous events precisely because 
these actions of Jesus went beyond the laws of nature. That's the definition of a miracle. Now, how can that happen? Just think about this. Death is a natural end. When we look here in Matthew chapter 9, what Jimmy preached on last week, right, verses uh, 18 and 19, and then dropping down to verse 22, the healing of this young girl, it was Luke's account, Luke chapter 8, that tells us that this young girl was 12 years old, and she was gone. I mean, can you imagine being a parent losing a 12-year-old daughter? The desperation that you would have coming to Jesus, begging for his intervention in this death. I have witnessed as well many people in their desperation and grief at funerals going up to coffins, I mean, convinced that if they go up to the coffin and demand that this dead person come up out of the coffin, then they will. That's an act of desperation. And Jesus heals and raises up this young girl from the dead. She was gone. And how does he describe it? He, he, he scolds the mourners, the professional mourners, and says, just go outside. He locks the door, and he goes to the little girl. He says, you're just sleeping. You see, in Scripture, in the New Testament especially, the New Testament understanding of death is that it is a form of sleep and that we will be raised in the end because Jesus has conquered death. Now think about this also, not trying to re-preach what Jimmy taught last week, but we have to tie this into today's message. This physical ailment from this uh, this unnamed woman, she had a, a female issue that she had been dealing with for 12 years. And think about this. If you were dealing with this type of ailment for 12 years, naturally you would think that this is uncurable. It's just something you're going to have to deal with. There is no natural remedy for this. Yeah, but with the word, Jesus does the unnatural by curing her. You see that? He takes the laws of nature and he just turns it upside down. So now we come um, to verse 27. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men following him, crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. What do we see here? We see two blind men, unnamed. They're following Jesus as he's leaving these other scenes of miracles, and they're following him, crying out to him, have mercy on us, son of David, acknowledging his title as the son of David, crying out for mercy. But notice here between verses 27 and 28, Jesus delays his acknowledgement. He doesn't even acknowledge what they're saying, right? Look here at verse 28. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him. So there was a delay between them crying out to Jesus on the street and Jesus entering the house. Now, we can infer here in verse 28, based on what we've seen in, in chapters 7, 8, and 9, that the house that Jesus enters most likely was Peter's house in Capernaum. You can kind of infer that from the gospel narratives. So perhaps in verse 28, Jesus is coming back to Peter's house. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? Only when they come into the house, Jesus acknowledges them, and he asks the questions, do you believe? So there has to be faith here. There has to be a sincere 
belief that Jesus can do what you are asking him to do. These blind men had sincere faith in who Jesus was. You see that? And Jesus recognizes this in them. But he also kind of asks the question, the thought, do you really believe me? Are you sure? You sincerely trust me in this? Yes, they say, and he heals them. He touches their eyes in verse 29, and he acknowledges here, the reason that he is able to heal, in verse 29, according to your faith, be it done to you. You see, Jesus, here in verse 29, is faithful to respond to genuine faith. That's something to remember here. Jesus is not bound at all. He can heal when he wants to heal, right? He can heal how he wants to heal. Jesus will forgive as Jesus deems it right to forgive. He is not sitting back waiting for us to have or to to make him cause us to be forgiven. He has the power. Now, we do rightly come to Christ in faith. We do rightly come to Christ in a sincere belief that Jesus has paid the price for our sin. Amen? Anyone who comes to Christ in any other manner is not coming to Christ in the proper way. They're coming to Christ in in the wrong way if their faith is not genuine. And I pointed this out before in in the Gospel of John chapter 2. Jesus responds to those who called out to him in his name in the appropriate way. I do, he says, I know your heart and I will not respond to you. So you can cry out to God in Christ's name, but if your heart is not genuine, Jesus is not going to be fooled. He's not going to be fooled because words, mere words are mere words, but the heart that expresses genuine words is that which Christ knows well. That is what he'll respond to, you see? But notice here in verse 29, Jesus is faithful to respond to these men because of their genuine faith. And he heals them. You see that? Now, drop down here to the second miracle in verse 32. As they, this is after Jesus opens their eyes. And then in verse 32, as they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. There was apparently a man who could not speak, and there were friends who brought him to Jesus. We saw this in chapters 8 and 9. Several people were brought to Jesus by friends and family who were either paralyzed or demon-possessed or had some physical ailments, and the the act of bringing them to Christ showed a, a level of faith and trust in Christ that in many ways Jesus responds to and says, your faith has made you well. We see this here in verse 32. Apparently, this man was not able to speak. Now, some translations, older translations say he was dumb, D-U-M-B, which was another word at one time for being mute, unable to speak. The tongue does not work. Now, it's possible here in verse 32 that this man may have originally been born with the ability to speak, and somewhere along the line, a demon possesses him, and he was now no longer able to speak. That is kind of inferred here. Because here's the thing, not all people who are mute are demon-possessed. 
You cannot take this one verse out of context in verse 32 and say that all people who are mute are demon-possessed, so we have to cast out demons from all people who are sick. Okay? This is where many many in the uh, Word of Faith movement, the Pentecostal charismatic movements, may take texts like this out of context and say universally, because they're sick, they must have a demon. That's not necessarily the case. The laws of nature tell us that if there is a virus out there in the wild and you get it, what's going to happen? You're going to get sick. I mean, that doesn't mean you're demon-possessed, okay? If you've had COVID-19 in the last year, I've heard this in the last couple of weeks. This really boggles my mind. You know, whenever, whenever there's, nat- there's a worldwide pandemic, there's all kinds of weird conspiracy theories out there. Y'all heard a few of those? Okay. One of them is, and, and this is where people are dangerous when they get a, uh, a Greek and Latin lexicon for the Bible. Okay. There is a, they, they take a Latin word and tie it in with a Greek word, and the Latin word for crown is corona. Okay. And then there's a Greek word for disease, and they take passages out of context, and, they, and it's out there. You can Google it, Okay that because the Latin word corona is in the book of Revelation, that coronavirus was predicted in by, John the, by John the Revelator in the book of Revelation. Don't go there, folks, please. Okay, please don't go down that road. We'll have a nice long chat, and I can show you some Latin and some Greek. That it's going, Don't do that. <laughs> so that's what I'm saying. People will take verses like this out of context in Matthew chapter 9, verse 32, that if you are unable to speak, if you are, I mean, if you have some physical ailment that keeps you from speaking, you must have a demon. So we have to exercise that demon from you. Not necessary. Now, in this context, yes. The scripture makes it plain. The cause of this man's inability to speak was the demon. It does happen. You see my point? If this man was originally able to speak, and suddenly a demon possesses him at some point in his life, and his friends and his family notice that there is a problem here, and they bring this man to Jesus. Jesus sees the supernatural event going on here, and he looks at him in verse 33. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. So clearly the cause of his inability to speak was the the demon. But when Jesus cast this demon out, His divine glory is shown. You see the point? The divine glory is shown. And the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. So demon possession, in this context, was clearly a problem. Now, in our 21st century mindset, let's stop and think here. Demon possession seems to be, in our westernized world, something that doesn't happen anymore or at least we don't acknowledge it anymore. You see the point? We're too sophisticated and intelligent in being able to answer all of the world's problems to believe in demon possession. Now, I am not a pastor, you know me, I am not a pastor who's out there looking for demon possession. I'm not out there looking for people to heal. I'm not out there looking for demons to cast out. That's not the level that we go to. Yet, we also have to be cautious here and realize we still live in a natural world that is controlled by and superseded by a supernatural reality. There is a spiritual warfare that the church is still called to wage. Amen? Demon possession does occur. 
It's just more subtle for us now because we are too blind to it. We have too many excuses for it. It's still there. But at the same time, there's also a, a balance. We don't go to the opposite extreme and look for demon possession in everything either. We don't discard it, but we don't go claiming it where it's not claimed either. There is wisdom in Scripture. There's wisdom in the faith. We acknowledge it, and we call on the Lord to deal with it. Because we are prone to disbelieve in the supernatural, because we're in this modern scientific age that we live in. And as such, I think we will disbelieve any sign of the unseen. When, when, when the supernatural occurs, we are going to be prone to disbelieve it because of where we come from in our society. We have to be cautious here and be real. In other words, seeing is not always believing in our world. But when you're looking at these miracles in the Scriptures, seeing was clearly believing. Jesus healed many. He cast out demons from many. And they, you either responded in shock and awe or you responded in skepticism and doubt, right? Whatever experiences we may have, would not go, we could also easily not regard supernatural events as miracles. We almost can explain away miracles today. If we have a philosophy that excludes the supernatural. When we see the supernatural at work, we're going to be blinded to it. Now, this is not just in miracles. This is also in salvation. Ponder this for a minute. Why, is the, why are the Gospels full of miracles? Remember, we talked about this for a few weeks. Miracles from Jesus point to salvation. Point two, the invasion of heaven into the world, if you want to use that language. Not that heaven is somehow barred from the natural world, because God himself is sovereign over all. Amen? God is sovereign over the real world. He's sovereign over the supernatural world. All reality is his, because in the beginning, God created what? The heavens and the earth. Reality is not just this physical world. It is the heavens and the earth. So none of it is a surprise to God. None of it holds him back. He is supernaturally, sovereignly over, over all of it. But if we have the mindset of the modern mind, there is a hindrance in our mind that all that there is is that which is material. It's called materialism. It fills our school systems. It fills our education systems. All that is true is that which is physical and material. There is nothing else. Amen? That's what's being taught. You may have been taught this and not realized it, that all that there is is that which is material. It's called materialism. And for the Christian, this can be a hindrance to our acceptance of the supernatural. This is how the devil works. The devil has come into our education system and elevated science, and, and science is good, don't get me wrong. Without science, I wouldn't have these wonderful things on my face so I could see, okay? Without science, we wouldn't have the medical advances that we have that are good, amen? Without science and technology, we wouldn't have lights and heating and cooling in this building. It's all good if used properly. Yet, here's the problem. Here's how Satan works. He has now elevated our minds to, or I should say devalued our minds to the point that all that we see and believe is real must be material. 
Yet there's a reality that is not material. It's called the supernatural. Demon possession, Christ himself, God himself, who is not material. <laughs> he, re- he does exist. You see, if we believe that all that exists is material, then we're going to suddenly also subtly think, well, God must not exist because he's not material. You see how the devil works? So if we come to miracle stories like this from that perspective, the devil has already put a hindrance in the modern mind that keeps us from seeing what God does, especially when it comes to salvation, because we cannot define salvation and explain salvation in material ways. Because a materialist would look at somebody's salvation experience and say, well, what is the chemical imbalance in their mind that caused them to think this way? Because everything that's material is also chemical. So they try to explain it that way, and what that does is that turns your head and turns your mind away from God, who is sovereign and does whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants. You see the subtlety here? So listen to this. For Jesus to miraculously upend the laws of nature shows that he considers the natural world valuable. This is another part of Christianity that we also have to be careful because there is also this understanding that has been in the church for many years and it goes back and forth and you have to have a fine, subtle balance here that that which is physical is so corrupt and polluted that it cannot be redeemed and all that is pure and good is that which is supernatural. In a way that's true, but not to that extent because if the natural world, the material world is so corrupt and polluted What you're saying is there's no way it can be redeemed. But at the heart of the gospel, at the heart of the Bible, is that God himself, who is not material, loves the material world he created so much that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to redeem it. That's what miracles are. Miracles are Jesus Christ showing his divine supernatural power that I love this material created world so much, I'm going to invade it and I'm going to cure it and I'm going to redeem it and I'm going to take my loved ones and I'm going to redeem them and I'm going to save them and I'm going to take them home to heaven with me. You see that? that that's a good place for an amen, Joe. Saying we're going. That's the point. See, God the Father loves his naturally created order so much that it's still part of his creation. And he wants to harmonize. This is what restoration, uh, reconciliation between the sinner and God is. The sinner who falls from grace. Remember that the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden actually ushered in a fallen creation, a fallen material natural world that the only redemption of that corrupt nature must come from outside of it. Redemption of the world cannot come from within the world. It has to come from outside of it. And that is God Almighty stepping in and saying, I am redeeming this. Christian Wyman writes for the Plow Quarterly Journal, the plow like a, a, a farmer's plow. That's the name of this journal. And and Christian describes the nature of the gospel miracles this way. 
thinking about miracles in the Gospels. Such thinking has helped us to resat to resacralize. In other words, bring the idea of the matter and the material world back into a sacred idea. Such thinking has helped to resacralize matter and restore primary importance to immediate existence that's human and otherwise. This is obviously Jesus' intention throughout the Gospels, even when actually, especially when he is performing miracles. The purpose of Jesus and his miracles is to show us that God still sees his world as worthy of being holy again. And that's the gospel. Is he going to restore this fallen world into an eternal kingdom that will always be? Absolutely. That's the beauty of the gospel. There is a glorious promise in the end that when the new Jerusalem comes (laughs) and the new kingdom comes, there will be a new world, but it's this world made so brand totally. It's not that God's going to destroy all all of the universe and start from scratch. He's taking this world and making it so new that it is radically new, this new Jerusalem, this new kingdom, this new heaven, eternally forever and ever and ever. That's the promise. Yet the miracles that we see here in the New Testament is exactly that. And it begins as the kingdom of heaven is established. And remember these last several months when we look at Matthew chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8, what is Jesus telling us about the kingdom of heaven? The kingdom of heaven is established where? Here. In the hearts of his church. The hearts of his faithful. That's where the kingdom is. That's where it, That's where he establishes it. And then we take that through his command and spread it throughout the world. So let's close out with this. Look here at verses 35 through 37. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the kingdom of the king the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. So you see here in verse 35, he's continuing to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom that he began in Matthew chapter 5, combined with the healing of every disease and every affliction, the miracles and the signs and the wonders. So the signs and the wonders and the preaching of the kingdom go hand in hand. You see that? Verse 36, when he saw the crowds, He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless. Some translations say they were fainted or distressed or downcast. And verse 36 continues, they were like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into this harvest. If you take nothing else away today, then this right here, then we have succeeded. Notice here in verse 36, why is it that Jesus was preaching the kingdom and healing every disease? Verse 36, because when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. He saw their state in this natural order, that they were distressed, they were helpless, they were harassed, they were downcast, they were sick, they were broken. This natural world that we live in that is now under the curse of Adam, according to Genesis chapter 3, is broken and distressed and distraught. And Jesus, in his compassion, 
part of his gospel ministry, his mission to establish the kingdom, came through this. He had compassion for them. His compassion reveals his genuine pastoral heart. Jesus is arrived on the scene to preach the truth of the gospel, to establish the kingdom of heaven, and in the process to show mercy and compassion to those who are helpless and harassed and broken and downtrodden. And the miracles are his way of elevating them and showing love and compassion to them and to show them that God has not forgotten them in their sin. So when you speak to your word of faith, brothers and sisters, your Pentecostal and and charismatic brothers and sisters who take the idea of miracles really to a, a pretty far extreme, caution them and say, yes, miracles are important, but don't worship the miracle and not worship the miracle maker. What is Jesus doing here? He's showing us what miracles are for. Miracles are not to be worshipped. They are to point us to the compassion of the miracle maker, Jesus himself, who loved us enough to meet us in our distress, to meet us in our sin, to meet us in our disease, to meet us where we are, fallen and broken and frail. He says, I love you enough to be right here with you, to raise you from the dead, to cure your blindness, to take care of your diseases, to cast out the demons. Amen? It's actually, miracles are a sign and a pointing to the greater miracle of salvation that Jesus washes away the sins of the world. He comes to us in our sin and says, I, through my compassion for you, take your sin upon me on the cross so that you can stand before the Father God Almighty blameless. That's the gospel. Amen? So Jesus' miracles, they seem to contradict the laws of nature, and they do for the right reason. But let's realize that what Jesus does when he breaks the laws of nature, he's actually showing that he's Lord of all the laws of nature. Because think of this, the laws of nature are the pattern to which every event must conform. When you think about the laws of physics, man, it's going to be real difficult to, to alter the laws of physics. If you are a soldier on a battlefield and you have a praying mother praying for you that you are safe and that God will protect you and you are standing on the battlefield and there is a bullet that misses your head by a fraction of an inch, that's a miracle. And you could arguably rightly argue that the prayer of that mother affected that moment. Yet ponder this, the laws of nature are this. If a bullet is on a particular trajectory, it's going to take a great power to move that trajectory. Yet what if God in his providence set all the laws of motion into motion and his law of providence, whenever far back he wanted to start it, caused, he knew what was going to happen in that particular moment, as a mother was praying, as a bullet was coming toward her son's head. He's law. He's the Lord of all nature, the Lord of all laws of nature, 
and he can control that whenever, however, and whenever he wants. That's the sovereignty of our Lord. And that's a greater miracle. (laughs) Amen. Than somebody claiming and demanding that God obey their wishes for a miracle. You see the point? The greatest miracle in these miracle stories of the Gospels is that the Lord of all nature orchestrates all events to produce these moments. I don't think, and and Jimmy rightly pointed this out briefly last week as I listened to his sermon. The woman with the issue of blood had been dealing with it for 12 years. The young girl who was dead, raised from the dead, she was 12 years old. There might have been something there that God was orchestrating in the birth of a young girl and the issue of the blood with a woman for 12 long years all culminating in one miraculous moment when two miracles happened. Wouldn't put it past God to do that, would you? (laughs) That's the greater miracle that we see happening here. God is the Lord of all nature. Jesus Christ, who is present at the creation of all things, They orchestrate all events to produce these moments of miraculous events to show the greater mercy and power and Lord of all and His love for us. That's how we see miracles in the Scriptures. Amen? Now, does that mean that we go out of here and say, now, miracles are for the weak-minded. Let me caution you and say this. We can be intelligent and we can be smart, but we can also be dumb in the process. We can be dumb in our intelligence. It's the faith in the supernatural Lord God Almighty and His Son, Jesus Christ, that He is Lord over all and sovereign over all. And to witness what He does with that power is the greatest miracle of all. Amen? Let's not walk out of here and say miracles don't happen anymore. They do. But I will also say that miracles don't happen when we demand they happen either. If they are happening because you're demanding it, it's not a miracle of God. I'll just say that. I'll close with that. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Father God, we praise you for your word. And dear God, I praise you for your son, Jesus Christ, who loved us enough to meet us in our disease, who loved us enough to meet us in our sin, who loved us enough to meet us in our frail conditions, who is Lord of all nature and Lord of all creation, who can heal as He heals, He can forgive as He forgives, He can save as He saves. And dear God, from Your Gospel Word in Matthew's account, Lord, thank You for showing us His power. Thank You for showing us that miracles and wonders point to something beyond what we know in the natural. And for that, Lord, we stand in awe. But more so, God, we stand in awe when you change the hearts of sinners and you reveal to them their need for you, that you take them out of themselves and call them to you. And so, God, I thank you for the fact that your sovereign grace saves us in the midst of our circumstances and you take us out of those circumstances and you set us upright and point us to your heaven and you say here is the kingdom that I'm establishing you in now go and preach the gospel 
Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for this time. Send us out to proclaim this truth to all as you have called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me remind you in verses 37 through 38. Then Jesus said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into this harvest. What is the harvest that we're called to do? (laughs) To bring them into the kingdom. To preach the gospel so that the kingdom is established in their souls. Thank you.